and welcome to another class in the bunker. Uh, we're uh, grateful to have all of you here and it's always fun to kind of get us together. Uh, it's still fun when we think about uh, how this class has kind of grown to where we had uh, those of us that would meet in the chapel uh, every Monday morning uh, and now our outreach is a little better. The thing that I'm really kind of grateful is that there are a number of you that for a number of reasons wouldn't be able to come in and and uh, be with us and so this is this is pretty good stuff um, and I, I like how this how this works. Um, and as always, please let us know where you're coming from. Uh, it's fun to see uh, people signing in from all over the place. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what we're liking. And then like the page so we can kind of have a head count. How we doing? So again, as we get rolling today, this is, this is really a, some, uh, a fun conversation that uh, we're about to have here. Uh, because we are going to take a little look at uh, uh, the fun blessings of narcissism, uh, <coughs> how everything is really about us. And I know that uh, uh, a few years ago I was fascinated by a wonderful, accurate book uh, by, by an author who, taught, who wrote a book called Generation Me. Um, and, her, and it's her tagline that I thought was so uh, pretty well put. She says, why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, enabled, and more miserable than ever before. Uh, these days, as we very well-meaning parents, we want to step in and make sure that kids succeed and we're doing everything for them and sometimes that stretches over to making sure that we do their their homework and make sure that we drag them across the line uh, to graduate and then we're helping them with their college papers uh, and their submissions to colleges to make sure they get in and then by then we're going to decorate their college dorm room so it looks really cute and and talk to them often, make sure the roommate isn't too much of a stretch, uh, and, then, and then make sure we're checking with their professors to make sure that they're getting the grades that they need. And by the end of that, then move them back home and their family next to you so you can keep an eye on them and their next generation of grandkids. Uh, we gotta make sure that these kids uh, succeed. In an interesting way, we also take uh, our kids that we're very carefully watching around and then we drop them in uh, little places in Chile and the Philippines uh, where they're, they're going to go out on missions and have to kind of fend for themselves and that, boy, that jump from always being watched over to not being watched over is a hard one. This, and so sometimes as parents and grandparents, we got to put uh, the responsibility for generation me uh, on our shoulders why it is that we do that now in a discussion about Paul and and the last d days of his life in church it seemed like working with narcissists would seem like kind of a weird place uh, to begin uh, but as we walk through it you'll go ah I see what he was up to and I see what you're doing with that thing uh, because it actually ties in uh, pretty well. Now, I find it interesting then that when we start talking about 
narcissists, in case those of us who don't completely know this, this is where basically the, the world revolves around me and I'm kind of the most important thing. And it's one thing if we are age 13 and 14 and we do that naturally and it's part of our developmental process. Uh, if you're not sure who a narcissist is, think about your average 13, 14, 15 year old. You're going to probably be pretty darn close uh, to the world does revolve around them and one zit means that the entire world is watching and horrified and repelled uh, by that zit that's on there. And that's all they will talk about now for the next week is just how big her zit was. And we can't believe that she, you know, that she went to school or that she was out and about with that big of an embarrassment in front. Well, yes, that's narcissism. Um, and when it shows up in marriages, and shows up in families, and shows up in churches, that begins to be a problem. So let, let's see kind of where that idea of this kind of this narcissistic push uh, on things kind of wove itself in uh, to first century Christianity, and I believe killed the first century church uh, the way that the, the Savior and the apostles had tried uh, to set it up. Now, of all places, if we go to DNC 1, which remember DNC 1 is the preface, the Lord's preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. The, when they were uh, organizing the church and trying to put it together, the Lord says, I'm going to put a preface here as to why we're doing what we're doing. So here comes DNC 1. And the, and the Lord is going to say in DNC 1, they, meaning the world, have strayed from my everlasting ordinances and have broken my everlasting covenant. Which is kind of fascinating if you think about how many covenants uh, at the organization of the church were actually in place. Okay, there's baptism. Uh, and that not much more beyond that. Maybe priesthood ordination, but we're not really rolling on ordinances and covenants yet. So, so when you're talking about straying from ordinances and breaking everlasting covenants, that leaves a that leaves a question as to what exactly which covenants are we talking about that are being broken? Uh, enough that you have to reestablish a church and bring a prophet and new scripture to try and restore a broken covenant. So you begin to see that this is more than, well, they were doing baptism wrong, and obviously they didn't have the right authority when they did that baptism. This is not that. This breaking of an everlasting covenant is larger than that. Uh, and you're going to see, again, where narcissism kind of pokes its pointed little head in the middle of all of this. Uh, because when they're breaking these covenants, the Lord says, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, and then because of that, every man walketh in his own way by the light of his own conceit, uh, and after the image of his own God. Well, that's great. Not only am I going to walk in my own light, uh, my own way, but I'm going to create my own God that actually is going to like everything I do. I'm going to create a God in my own image. Uh, my God likes me a lot, no matter what I'm doing. 
uh, he likes me. Uh, and, and in doing that, we're going to find out, yes, there was a covenant being broken here, but what covenant is that? And now, to try and kind of get behind that, dig underneath that just a little bit, uh, I don't want to make this too complicated, uh, but there's a very similar image that we get all the way back into Deuteronomy, right about the death of Moses. And at the death of Moses, the Lord is going to say this. You, Moses, are going to rest with your fathers. Well, that's nice. But these people, these Israelites, will soon prostitute themselves, interesting word, prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they are entering. Whoa, okay. Now, they will forsake me, the Lord says, and break the covenant. There's that breaking of the covenant again. They will break the covenant I made with them. Wow. And you're thinking, what covenant did the Lord make with them? <coughs> On that day, he says, I will become angry with them and forsake them. Now, it's that breaking of the covenant again. Same language. Somehow, righteous people keep breaking covenants. What covenants are they breaking? Where, where are we going with this? Now, so, so what covenants does the Lord proclaim broken uh, when, we're, when we're looking at this? Um, and, you know, I know, while you're thinking, and I know you are, um, let me just kind of put just a little bit more context uh, in all of this, and you're going to kind of see where he's going. Now, in order to do that, we have to go back just kind of a, a few weeks ago. We, we talked about something that was pretty important to the, this whole picture. And it's something that I call collaborative grace. And that is when we talk about uh, the idea of grace in the New Testament, uh, the word that is used uh, for grace, um, what it is actually meaning the, the, is it kind of goes back to this old idea of connections between people and covenant making with them. And what you get is a, is a giver of some type who's going to extend an offering to a receiver and there's a responsibility on the receiver part to give a return offering. And you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that that works really well between two equal parties. But oftentimes this, uh, this, uh, this uh, approach to grace uh, and, and the, the word uh, for this is, gonna, is the same root word as charity. It's called charis uh, or charis. Um, means that this process also works between two unequal parties. So what we remember, we talked about the fact that there were going to be times that uh, this collaborative grace would be between a king and his subjects, where for the king, the king was going to provide charis, was going to provide a gift of 
safety and security and, and maybe even foodstuffs or land uh, or something like that. And the receiver would be his, his servants. What did he require in return from, from those servants which was loyalty uh, and, uh, and, and providing things for the king uh, sometimes even providing men for an army or something. But there was still an idea that this wasn't uh, a free, wasn't grace freely given. That In other words, grace was never free. Grace came with it, extending something, you're going to return something back. And finally, you recall kind of the, the, the most important part, and certainly for Paul when he's writing about Chorus, charity, grace, in the New Testament was the idea of a God who was offering uh, the, the gift of the atonement, was offering salvation uh, to, to his children who that would be the receivers of this charis, of this gift. But in return, that required something on them on the other side, a return offering <coughs> of of a lot of things potentially. Now, that might mean, for instance, that this uh, charis might be as simple as loyalty, obedience, uh, and, but it was also about uh, if you've received grace, you're going to do the thing I did for you. I served you, I loved you, I took care of you, and in return, you're going to re what I want you to do is, if you love me, keep my commandments. Peter, uh, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. There's the, there's the return. And the process of then, I'm going to offer you commandments. And that's what section one is talking about. Seeing the calamity that was about to exist, and we don't see any calamities in the world today, but, you know, seeing the calamities that was this, I gave unto my servant Joseph Smith commandments. Why? So that I loved you, and seeing the calamities, I'm going to give you gifts that will enable you to survive the calamities by learning to love and serve and minister the same way I do. Be like me. And, and, and in doing that, we're going to return that offering. Well, that's, this, call, this is called a covenant. <laughs> this is called, because what the ordinances are all about. Because at the end of the day, we're not saved by our ordinances. We're not. Every, our temple work tells us everybody's going to get the ordinances. Everybody ultimately that's lived is going to be baptized and receive temple ordinances. They're, everybody's going to get the ordinances. What's going to save us is this gift that he's giving us that, of, that's going to transform us into people that can live in his presence and will want to live in his presence. Now, part of what we give back, we will be baptized. We will, we will receive temple covenants. We are, we're going to be ha, participate in the new and everlasting covenants, being married. But 
you know what? In the eternities, those are going to be offered to everybody else. They are going. These are transforming, changing things that cause us and enable us to become like He is. Pretty, pretty cool. This is basically how a covenant works, and it is a relationship kind of thing. Ultimately, if you'll take a look at what this is talking about, there is there is a counseling and a working together with. Uh, with God, uh, when when it talks about um, uh, that the gods counseled together in the Book of Abraham, what they were doing was collaborating. Then what did they do? Well, let's bring all of the children, the pre-existence. We'll bring them together. What are we going to do? We're going to collaborate with them. We don't use the word collaborate. We often use the word counsel. We counseled with them in the beginning. We collaborated with them so that they could work out their salvation with fear and trembling. How? By working together with us. We're providing something. They're providing something. We're going to counsel together. Prior to talking today, I just got off of a Zoom call with our ward council and what what did we do we counseled and collaborated together about how during the during the as churches are opening back up how do we make sure people take the sacrament and not get covid spittle on them <laughs> you know how do we keep people safe well that's a collaborative effort to try and do these kind of things and, across, and this is the way God works. God collaborates. God counsels with. God draws on his thing, our thing, that comes together. Is it any wonder then that, from, that uh, even as the, the brethren ha, have administratively set up the idea of ward councils and high councils and... Uh, bishops councils and we're, we're having these collaborative things that we want to be able to do what a shocker that if we want to raise uh, powerful capable adults from kids that what should we be doing as parents we collaborate we work together with them We ha they have input into what the family goals are, but also what consequences need to be there. A family council is a collaborative effort where they get to participate and work out the, their own freedoms with fear and trembling, if you will. But that by doing that, they can learn how the whole process of collaborating works. Any of us would know that a, a marriage that tries to function not on a collaborative effort, but on a on a uneven one's in charge and the other one just has to follow, is never really a happy marriage. Because take out the collaboration, and you've actually taken out kind of God's pattern uh, of working together with, from a training, from an understanding, from that this that collaboration is the most powerful, ennobling. Uh, exalting path to being like he is 
and God is the ultimate collaborator. Always has been. Come now, let us reason together. It is, that, that's kind of how it sounds. That, that's how it's supposed to work. So, now, by the way, think about what we were just talking about with uh, narcissism. And I'm going to sprinkle this in as we get a little closer here. If this is about offering and returning and collaborating, collaborating together, uh, narcissistic, self-centered kind of ideas are the ultimate spitting in the soup. It's a really gross analogy, I know. But it, it destroys that collaborative, working together process and prevents that that all from being able to equally work through the things that, that need to be done. Okay, so, so we, we remember now how that worked. So now let's go back. Let's go back to where we are. Um, we talked about the fact that the Lord said that there were certain covenants that were broken. And because of that, he was having to step in and do a new thing. He was going to have to restore a gospel and restore a prophet. Um, because covenants were going to be broken. Now, let's go back to that line. They will forsake me, he says to Moses, and break the covenant. You say, okay. What covenant was broken? Well, it, it makes it a little bit easier um, if we take a look. Uh, years ago, uh, BYU professor Noel Reynolds, I thought, gave a, a really good explanation of kind of what this breaking process, you know, kind of looked like. Um, and he says, the word used here, this breaking the covenant, the word used here is apostion. Meaning apostasy. What that meant was a little rebellion or a little apostasy. And then specifically, it had reference to uh, the actions that may be involved inside a divorce. That there's a little rebellion within the marriage covenant. And it's the breaking of a marriage covenant. And again, if you look at it, it's not a big over-the-top rebellion out that everybody sees. It's an internal inside rebellion, and it's an internal breaking of covenants that happen not from the outside, but from the inside. So he's saying they, so the Lord going back to here is saying Moses, after you, after you come and join us, because remember he was uh, translated, caught up to meet with him. After you leave, they, Israel, will forsake me and apostatize. Uh, there will be a small rebellion in the covenant that I made with them. And what will that covenant look like? Well, that means they're going to go after other gods. Meaning that they have divorced me, 
and broken the covenant because they're going to go elsewhere. You get kind of an adulterous kind of feel of they're going to break this covenant, uh, which if if they rebel against me, then my covenant is null and void. It's actually broken uh, in a very powerful way. And so take, take a look at where that goes then. Let's go back to this idea then. Um, again, we have the giver and, and we have this collaborative effort going on with the offering and the returned offering and the receiver. That's what a covenant looks like. So what was it that happened in the long run here? Well, what's going to happen just from the basis of the church is that if you take a look at what emerged from the from the great rebellion, if you will, the great apostasy, the little rebellions that became a big rebellion, and we call it the great apostasy, but it's really the it is it's the rebellion, and it's the rebellion against covenants that God made. Now, watch what covenant gets gets made here, uh, and again, the back of your head keep say, okay, where do the narcissists show up? Ah, they're about to come. And here, here they come. Uh, we get into the Middle Ages. And what has actually happened here is that instead of these covenants, the covenants slowly get replaced uh, by the Christian sacraments and the creeds. And remember, the Lord to Joseph Smith says those creeds are abomination. Well, let me tell you why they were abominations. Because here we have a collaborative effort going on. When the covenants were replaced by sacraments, what that meant is that you had, uh, they began to see God and God's grace and a very sovereign God. They pulled God way up here and he just was really kind of unavailable. And he just saw, and, and, and the people um, were kind of seen a bit as empty vessels, really what they were. Uh, and they were empty vessels that were not capable of doing any good all by themselves. They're just an empty vessel. In fact, they're an empty kind of loathsome vessel. In fact, they are basically a wretch. They are basically refuge. They are the Adam sinned, and we're sinful humanity. And uh, uh, men and women never do the right thing. And he just kind of got this very dark. As we rolled into the Middle Ages, very dark, uh, lustful, sinful, natural men and women uh, that constantly rebel against God. You get some of King Benjamin's understanding of that as well, that the natural man will always be an enemy to God, right? Because he's just naturally that way. And so because of that, the, the, this covenant working together, collaborating with God, was replaced by a completely different view of things, which said, 
God in his, as a as a the uh, distant, all powerful, all seeing, all knowing, sovereign. By his good grace and willingness, is willing to impart grace, a gift, into these empty vessels. But because they're not good all themselves, what was placed in it was God's righteousness. It's called imputed grace or imputed righteousness. And it's part of what drives a lot of traditional Christianity. It's the idea of an unworthy human being being filled, not because of any of their own goodness, but because of God's righteousness that has filled them Take God's righteousness out for a minute and there's still an empty vessel. There's never growth in the vessel. It just stays an empty vessel. So if that's the case, then what evolved out of the Nicene Creed uh, in the early uh, 3rd century, 4th century, and the Westminster Confession, and all of these creeds trying to say, man's basically a worm, and God, and we should be grateful for anything that God does to us, but at the end of the day, we're still a worm. <laughs> we never get any better. There's never any change. There's any, never any transformation in us. We're just that kind of pe- that kind of creatures. And so how do you impute into empty vessels God's grace? Well, that's where ultimately what happened then was that priests and the church placed themselves as the the uh, the, the the way in which that grace was in, was uh, placed into people via sacraments the sacrament of uh, infant baptism the sacrament of uh, confession the sacrament of last rites the the sacrament of um, uh, all of these little things along the way that had to be administered by the church and by a priest couldn't be done by common people because, again, they're basically scum. And, and it be, instead of having this collaborative effort, now we had a one-way street going on here. And in this one-way street, then it's easy to see how People that didn't get last rites would go to hell. They weren't. They were. They had to have those things. And people that weren't going to go to confession and do uh, penance for their sins and to try and get your loved ones out of uh, purgatory because they again they couldn't do it by themselves. And these people trying to get their people out of purgatory can't do it unless the priest is helping me and the church. You know, what was lost here? What covenant was lost? Was our relationship with God. Our relationship with a collaborative deity. A collaborative father who is, as Paul was trying to tell the gray beards at Mars Hill, He's closer than you have any idea and wants to be involved. And the Epicureans in, in Athens were going, God did his business. He's gone. He's left. He has nothing to do with us. And Paul's saying, oh, no. 
God is closer to us and you have made him unknown and wants to be involved not just in your salvation but in your transformation he wants to help you change and become like him and he wants to do it collaboratively and change you that's the covenant ultimately that needed to be restored not the God of John Calvin but the God of Moses in Moses 7 who weeps with his children that is a massive difference and God is saying and that's a broken covenant you're cutting me and my love for you out and I want to give you ordinances that are public administrations and places that help you grow and change and be transformed to be like me so what got how did that happen how did they go from working out your your uh, salvation with fear and trembling with a loving caring collaborative God to getting to the sacraments where we're just going to impute grace into you uh, who is an empty vessel how'd that happen well now we're going to go back to the great rebellion the great apostasy which I, I, I've kind of coined the, the great hypocrisy uh, because some of the question that has always laid at the background of this is when exactly did this apostasy this rebellion actually happen well as we're reading if you have to if you have to ask when did the apostasy happen you haven't read the Pauline epistles and you haven't read the last part of the book of more uh, the last part of uh, the New Testament you gotta get out of the gospel the four gospels and get in there because it's there and it'll jump out at you okay so the Apostle Paul is is giving us these little hints like to the Galatians I am amazed at how quickly you're deserting the one who called you who wants to covenant with you you are deserting him you are breaking the Charis covenant he, you, you, broke, you tore up the contract I'm amazed at how quickly you are deserting the one who called you uh, there are some of you that are troubling you there are those in your midst who want to turn you away from the gospel of Christ how did it happen well they had help this, this is how it happened then to his pain and, he, and when he's writing from Caesarea on his way to, on his way to, uh, to Rome and, and uh, next week we're going to talk about the great shipwreck uh, at Malta how much fun that was um, he says you know that all who are in Asia okay let me stop for a second specifically he's calling out Ephesus Antioch all in Asia not so much Philippi yet over in Europe and maybe not so much uh, some of the other places Thessalonica 
but you know that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. And then he starts calling out names. Among those are Phyglius and Hermonges, or Hermonges. He's, he's calling out names. These are the people that are doing it to you. Based on a desire for a covenant? No, based on a desire for them to be in charge and them to be in control. This is where the narcissism begins to split and divide the church. Now, was Paul the only one who saw this? No, the other brethren saw it well. But I just, I just want to, to give you another uh, flavor of this. This is actually the Apostle John, and it's in Third uh, John. He says, I have written some, something to the church, but Diophanes, who loves to be first, <laughs> Diophanes, who loves to be first, does not acknowledge us. Therefore, if I come... I will remember what he is doing, making empty charges against us. Because he loves to be first. The uh, narcissists have begun to run amok here. Here they are. And, he says, not satisfied with that, he not only refuses to accept the brothers and sisters himself, but he hinders those who want to receive them and he casts them out of the church. He's in charge. It's about him. He's creating little kingdoms. Uh, when Joseph, sitting in Liberty Jail, is writing and he says, when people have a little authority, as they suppose, they begin to exercise dominion. Well, from a church standpoint, he says, they exercise unrighteous dominion. They're using the church as their narcissistic club to build their kingdom and to get to be first. I want to be in charge. I want to be the one. And he's casting people out that don't want to be on his team and do things his way uh, and, and so John says beloved do not imitate the evil but the good the one who does good is from God the one that is wanting to love you and collaborate with you and grow with you and the one who wants to be first the one who does evil has not seen God <laughs> and and if this is truly if this writer is truly who we think he is the apostle John he's saying he could add a postscript to that and say and I have and he collaborated with me he worked with us while we we're feeding the 5,000 he collaborates he doesn't put himself first and put you down. He works with us. So what we're watching with the great rebellion, 
was these little rebellions. In each one of these churches, as, as people of ego uh, were stepping up and trying to control in the way that they did things. So, one other thing that, that I wanted to throw out here as part of this. And there's a fascinating little mystery. Uh, and, and it's this. Paul, in trying to explain how this little apostasy, the inside rebellions, happen, he does, he does an interesting thing. He, uh, here's, here's his quote. He says, uh, for, for among them, some of those that are fomenting things within the church, in their little narcissistic role, for among them are those that creep into houses and captivate weak women. By the way, this also happened in Nauvoo uh, with a couple of people. And captivate weak women who are burdened with sins and led around by various passions who are ever learning but are never able to come to a knowledge of the truth because they have their own truth. They are... They're reading by the lamp of their own conceit. It's about their light, not anybody else's. Who are ever learning, and we know this phrase, who are never able to, come, to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. <laughs> then he says, Just as James and Jambres oppose Moses, these men oppose the truth, men of corrupt minds and counterfeit faith. Well, okay, I know that all of us are well-versed in the story of Janus and Jambres, right? We know that one well. We, that's a favorite in primary and sacrament meeting talks, Janus and Jambres. Um, actually, none of us have heard about Janus. And, and so I do some research. I'd never heard of Janus and Jambres. I had to figure out who these guys were. And the more you study, the cooler it gets, or the weirder it gets, depending on how you want to go. There's a lot of different mythology around Janus and Jambres. There's a lot. But let me tell you the Jewish version of it that is, that is actually kind of pretty cool. Remember, remember when Moses is trying to get the children of Israel out of Egypt and he goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh keeps saying no. And then at one point, Moses takes his staff, remember, and he throws the staff down and the, and the staff turns in to the snake. And then you recall, remember if you've seen the movie, uh, that, that there are magicians who then throw their staff down and they turn into snakes. And then Moses' snake eats their snakes. According to Jewish tradition, those magicians in Pharaoh's court were Janus and Jambres. They are magicians. Now again, according to Jewish tradition, when Moses then takes the children of Israel into the wilderness, Janus and Jambres like Moses' magic better than they like what they're getting in Pharaoh's court. And supposedly they convert to Judaism, join the children of Israel in the wilderness. Wow. And it's Janus and Jambres, though, that while Moses is on high on Mount Sinai, that persuade Aaron 
to build the golden calf. It's a little rebellion inside the ranks, from inside, not from outside. They could survive the Roman chariots, but they couldn't survive internal disruption. Uh, now, because of that, Paul says, they will, prog they will not progress further for their lack of understanding will be obvious to everyone as it came for these two men. Everybody came to know that Janus and Jambres were, were charlatans and they didn't really convert to Judaism. Now, I put Dead Sea Scrolls on here because there is one other fascinating possibility. We know this is a Jewish tradition, but, the, but was more possible is the fact that the story of Janus and Jambres is also included in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know Jesus quoted from the Dead Sea Scrolls at the Sermon on the Mount. And it could very well be that Paul was also quoting from the Dead Sea Scrolls to get us to the story of Janus and Jambres. Okay, okay. so we're about done here. Uh, before we finish though, so I, I want to roll it around and just kind of finish with, with these, uh, these ideas then. There are three great myths that Noel Reynolds identified uh, about how the great apostasy, the great rebellion, rebellion worked. Uh, number one, that it was caused by outside forces and attacks. No, it was caused by the Janus and Jambruses and the Narcissus in their midst. It was caused by infusing Greek philosophy into that, like we saw at the Council of Nicaea. That had already occurred by the time we got to Nicaea and Constantine. It had happened in the first century. It was already occurring. And finally, uh, that the Catholic Church was the great and abominable church and they caused the great apostasy. What, the, what, the, what Catholicism received after Nicaea going forward and, and through Augustine was already a church that had splintered from the inside given the egos and the narcissists that were splintering the, the Janus and Jambruses of the, of the small house churches that were trying and vying for control to split this whole thing. So, uh, in closing then, as, as we're finishing, I want us to take then a look ultimately at, at uh, what we begin to see happening. The great apostasy, the great rebellion happened not because of outside forces, but because of internal dissension within. The Lord has always declared that the greatest apostasy would come from inside our own ranks. Joseph was always stung more by his brethren from inside the church that spoke against him than those that attacked him without. Brothers and sisters, I think it's incumbent upon us to love and collaborate and work with all people to create the environment that needs to be uh, nurtured so that all of us may then be able to uh, get rid of those little rebellions little narcissistic traits that we have and return to live with him.
I bear you my testimony that we're able to do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.